Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Powered People Podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane and Tony Okamoto. Today, we are very excited to chat with our friend, Dr. Cyrus Kambada from Mastering Diabetes. He is really He's really funny and it's it's a weird thing to say because we're talking about something that's really heavy, but I just have learned so much from him and have so much respect for what they're doing. I know a lot of people personally in my life who have suffered from type 2 diabetes specifically and to hear him talk it out helps me understand the struggle, how it can be reversed and and more. It's interesting because I, having been tuning into the plant-based way of eating and how it impacts the health, I thought I I knew the things about diabetes that there were to know. But I watched one of the videos that you did with Dr. Kambada last year, was it? And I just walked away from that video with so much new knowledge and feeling so empowered about the control that we have over our own health. So Dr. Cyrus Kambada, he's incredible. He is the co-author of the New York Times best-selling book called Mastering Diabetes, The Revolutionary Method to Reverse Insulin Resistance Permanently in Type 1, Type 1.5, Type 2, Pre-Diabetes, and Gestational Diabetes. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's co-founder of Mastering Diabetes. He's an internationally recognized nutrition and fitness coach who has been living with type 1 diabetes himself all the way since 2002. He co-created the Mastering Diabetes Method, which helps people reverse insulin resistance in all forms of diabetes, all of the five that I just mentioned. And he's helped more than 10,000 people improve their metabolic health using a method that's involving low-fat, plant-based, whole food nutrition, intermittent fasting, and exercise. So we're so excited to welcome on Dr. Cyrus Kambada. But before we get started, we want to give a big thank you to our sponsors of this episode, Better Than Bouillon and Vital Body Therapeutics, which I know Tony is a big fan of. Yes, I've been using Vital Body Therapeutics for quite some time now. I use it primarily for my achy body. I because carry, you're 100. <laughs> I carry a lot of my stress. Like I can get through it with my thoughts, but it all manifests in my body. So I I hold tension in my lower back and in my shoulders. And at the end of the night, when I'm ready to go relax and go to sleep, I just put a little bit on my shoulders, my neck, my lower back, and I feel so relaxed and it gets me ready and in the zone to sleep well. And for those who don't know Vital Body Therapeutics, they offer CBD-infused creams and body oils and even facial oils. Mm -hmm. And Epsom salt. So if you wanted to soak, uh, if you wanted to, I know Michelle's a big bath person. So if you are a big bath person too, you can soap in the Epsom salts too that Vital Body Therapeutics makes and get super cozy before bed. They're a woman-owned business, which we always appreciate. And their company founders are both body workers. And they're also spa owners. And it gave them this unique opportunity to really uh, intentionally create and refine the formulations to create the, this perfect solution to aches and pains. Yes. And if you are interested in checking it out for yourself, you can go to vitalbodytherapeutics.com. We will link that in the show notes and check out their many different products. Again, they have creams, Epsom salts, oils, and you can get cozy too. We also want to give a big thank you to Better Than Bouillon, which as 
you know by now if you're a listener, as a big staple in both Tony's home and my home. It is a concentrated soup broth stock. So you can use it instead of those big cartons of soup broth that you find at the store. It is more sustainable. It is made with natural healthy ingredients. They have lots of vegan flavors and it will save you money as well. And you can find it at so many different grocery stores. You can find a huge, gigantic one at Costco, even the 16, the 16 ounce one. If maybe they don't carry it at the grocery store near you, you can also go on their website, betterthanbouillon.com and check it out there. They have a variety of different vegan flavors we love. My personal favorite is the no chicken stock and Michelle which one do you get? I know you I use, the vegetable, use the vegetable, the vegetable yeah. base. And that's the one that's available at Costco too. It's not just a soup base. We've called it a soup base, but it is a flavor enhancer of so many different meals, including grains or stir fries, or I've cooked a pasta dish with fresh herbs and tomatoes, and it gives it more complex flavor. And without having to use a lot of different spices in or, or having to go buy a lot of different spices. So my little one used to love eating plain grains. He would just throw down some quinoa or barley or whatever. But now he likes a little bit flavor enhanced. So just adding like a little little scoop of better than bouillon when I'm cooking up those grains, it makes my little one way, way more interested in the food. So it's a big a big win for anyone trying to get more whole foods into your life without sacrificing flavor. If you're interested, check them out at betterthanbouillon.com. Thank you. Hi, Cyrus. Thanks so much for being on the Plant Powered People podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here, guys. I, I'm, I'm excited to get into a long, fun, deep conversation here about things that matter when it comes to diabetes. I'm excited to have you because this is such a... It, It can be, for some people, a really heavy topic. I know people whose children have type 1 diabetes. I know people who have had to make really serious life changes because of their type 2 diabetes diagnosis. And you provide this information in such a way that it is is uplifting and inspiring and just really easy to digest. So I am excited and eager to jump in. But first... I would love to hear more about your journey with living with diabetes and how you came to plant-based living. So thank you for saying what you said earlier. I, I appreciate that. You know, it's funny because when I grew up, I grew up as an athlete, you know, from literally from the time I was like three years old, I was already running around the house like a maniac. And um, I would have friends come over and we would just sort of like, you know, throw balls at each other and, you know, pretend like we were in Olympic soccer games. And then, you know, I started playing baseball from a young age and then I started playing basketball. And before I knew it, I was enrolled in every sport known to man. And my mom's chief job in life was to just tire me out before I got home. So that way she wouldn't have to do as much. Right. But my mom also taught me from a young age that what you put in your mouth actually does matter. And that was very helpful, actually, because it made me realize that there's a big difference between going to the grocery store and just getting a bunch of packaged and processed food and eating that, and then actually making your food at home using more whole ingredients, you know, that come mainly from the produce section. So long story short, but, you know, as I was growing up, I ate what I considered to be a pretty healthy diet. 
and I would say it was like, you know, made lots of fresh food were present in our, in, a, in my eating regimen. But then at the age of 22, when I was finishing college, I was going to Stanford University and I was just trying to graduate and move on with my life with a degree in engineering. And all of a sudden my whole world came crashing down on me because I started to feel really thirsty, like insatiably thirsty. And uh, I picked up the phone and called my sister, who's a doctor. And I said, hey, Shanaz, why am I so thirsty right now? Uh, and why am I so tired? And why am I urinating every 30 minutes like clockwork? And my sister's brilliant. And she knew instinctively, as soon as I said those words, she's like, Cyrus, stop everything you're doing. Go to the, go to the, uh, to the hospital right now. You're telling me that you have type 1 diabetes. And I was like, diabetes? Are you kidding me? I don't have diabetes. And she's like, I don't have time to explain. Just go to the hospital now. And you see, at that time, I didn't know anything about diabetes or health or, or biology. I literally thought diabetes had something to do with old people and cake. And I was like, this, this doesn't, that's not my story. So I go to the hospital and uh, I explain my symptomology to them. They check my blood glucose and I'm at a 600. So your blood glucose is supposed to be between like 80 and 130, 70 and 130 on a daily basis. And um, for the two of you guys, if I were to check your blood glucose at any time of the day, in the middle of the night, after a meal, before a meal, in the middle of exercise, after exercise, you name it, your blood glucose is gonna probably be between 70 and 130 for like 99% of all your entire waking life. But when, you're develop, when you develop diabetes, what ends up happening is that there's a number of mechanisms in you know, your blood glucose, in, in your, in your uh, glucose metabolism that get altered such that your blood glucose can go up extremely high. So when I checked into the hospital, they checked my blood glucose and it was at a 600. And that is like, that is alarmingly high. So at that point, they knew immediately that I had type 1 diabetes. And then while I was in the hospital, they also diagnosed me with two other autoimmune conditions, which is alopecia universalis, which is why it's basically code for no hair, then Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. And so they were like, wow, we've literally never seen anybody with this combination of autoimmune diseases before. Can we talk about you in our next team huddle? And I was like, sure, you can talk about me, no problem. But that didn't give me a lot of confidence as if they actually knew what to tell me because it's the first time they'd ever seen this before. So the one piece of advice that they could give me was that eating a low-carbohydrate diet is probably a good idea because when you eat a low-carbohydrate diet, then you can keep your blood glucose low. And by eating a low-carbohydrate diet and keeping your blood glucose low, that will also help you minimize how much insulin you are injecting. So I was like, okay, I have to do this insulin injection thing now. And I'm told to eat a low-carbohydrate diet because that's going to help me control my blood glucose and my insulin use. Let's do it. So under their supervision, I started eating things like turkey burgers for breakfast with some eggs. And then I would have, you know, some white meat for lunch. And then I would have some like olive oils and avocados and nuts and seeds and, you know, salmon for dinner. And I was trying to limit my intake of fruits and potatoes and rice and quinoa and corn because those are carbohydrate rich. And, you know, according to their philosophy, if I were to eat those foods, my glucose would go way up. So I was doing this low carbohydrate thing for about a year from 2002 to 2003. And I was like, okay, cool. This is, my doctors told me to do this. I'm, I'm a good patient. I'm following their recommendations. This should work, but it didn't. My blood glucose, like I, I literally wish I had, uh, I don't know, recorded some videos or taken a screenshot of like what my glucose was doing on a daily basis. 
but it was a disaster. It was a joke. My blood glucose was, was all over the place. Again, it's supposed to be between 70 and 130 for most of the day. And my glucose would ping pong between like a 40 and a 400 multiple times per day. And I was like, I'm trying so hard. Like I'm really trying to do this thing and I'm exercising on a daily basis. I'm like, maybe I'm doing something wrong. So I like kept on refining my techniques and it just like, it just didn't make any sense. So I ended up just doing uh, some research online. This is like in the early days of the internet and it wasn't really that easy to find good information. But I started reading things online and talking to people. And I was living in San Francisco at the time. And one guy introduced me. He's like, you know what? You should talk to Doug Graham. And I was like, who's Doug Graham? He's like, well, Doug is a, uh, he's a he, he teaches people how to eat a plant-based diet and how to eat predominantly a raw food diet. And then as a result of that, you can overcome a lot of different diseases and get tr- dramatically improved energy. So I was like, cool, I'm sold. So I ended up interacting with Doug Graham and explained my situation to him. And he's like, hey, I'm holding a sports camp two weeks from now. Why don't you come? I'll change your life. And I was like, cool, let's do it. So I flew into Colorado and I hung out with him for a week with a bunch of other people. And while I was there, he basically explained to me using both biology as well as just normal words, why the method that I was doing of eating a low carbohydrate diet was actually making my blood glucose harder to control. But again, that was a different story that I've been told from the medical professionals. And, you know, I'm the kind of guy that like gives a lot of validity and a lot of authority to medical professionals. So I was like, huh, that doesn't make any sense. So I started doing exactly what Doug told me to do, which was eat lots of fruits. I mean, I would literally be eating piles of bananas and mangoes and papayas and grapes and oranges and using those fruits to get the the bulk of my energy. And then in the evening hours, I'd be eating a lot of vegetables, you know, tomatoes, cucumbers, broccoli, corn, stuff like that. And uh, what I noticed was that on the week that I was with him, my carbohydrate intake, which I was trying to control and suppress down to being approximately like, you know, 100 grams a day or so, I let it go. And I was like, listen, I'm just going to do what Doug's telling me to do. I went from eating 100 grams of carbohydrate per day to 600 grams of carbohydrate per day. So not just like a small increase, but a six-fold uh, you know, intake of carbohydrate. And as a result of that, I was expecting that my blood glucose would also go through the roof because that's what the doctors, that's what literally what the entire diabetes world tells you is that more carbs, more sugar equals higher blood glucose. I mean, I'm sure you guys have probably seen this story all over the place, right? So yeah. I was afraid of eating carbohydrates. And like, that's what happens when you're living with diabetes is you kind of get crippled and fear the consumption of anything carbohydrate rich, whether it's a banana or whether it's a piece of bread. And so I was nervous and then I started eating the way Doug told me to eat and 100 grams turned into 600 grams per day and my insulin use went in the opposite direction. And that to me was mind blowing. I was using about 45 units of insulin per day and even though I six-folded my carbohydrate intake, my insulin use went from 45 units down to 36 units or so on the first day. And then the second day went from 36 down to 32. And then the next day went from 32 down to 29. And then the next day went down from 29 to 24. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is unbelievable. So I'm using less insulin. My glucose was falling like a rock my glucose was more stable. I had more energy. I was more hydrated. I could sleep better. 
I started playing more sports. And, you know, literally after one week, my insulin use had been cut by 40%. I felt very, very good, very energetic. And I hadn't felt that way in a long time. And then when I went back to my normal life in San Francisco, I just kept on, you know, doing exactly what Doug told me to do. And I started eating, you know, lots, tons of fruit, vegetables, whenever possible. And that was the entrance into being a plant-based eater. So I was like four years into this process and I was just loving every minute of it because I was, I, I was given an opportunity to eat really tasty foods and not fear carbohydrates anymore. In fact, not only not fear carbohydrates, but look forward to and seek out carbohydrate energy wherever I could find it. And so that became my new fuel. And in the process of doing that, I, was, I lowered my intake of protein and I lowered my intake of fat, which again, goes against most of the stuff that you read on the internet. Because even in today's world, when you go and look online for anything about diabetes or even heart disease or even being an athlete, Everything is about protein, 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 protein. Protein stabilizes blood glucose. Protein allows you to be a stronger athlete. Protein is what's gonna help you build strong bones and strong muscles. So there's a biological role for protein, I get it. But this like over-exaggeration that like protein is the answer to all your problems is what was actually leading me in the wrong direction. And once I started to lower my protein intake and lower my total fat intake, I started to see so many dramatic improvements in my blood glucose control and just the way that I felt that it was, it was literally unmistakable. So four years into this journey, I decided, you was like, you know what? I kind of want to learn some science about this stuff. Like I, I'm very interested in what's actually happening inside of me and I can't explain it using science. So I started going to, uh, I was in Hawaii at the time. So I went to the University of Hawaii and I started enrolling in prerequisite coursework and like organic chemistry and biochemistry and human biology. And I did all the prerequisite coursework to go get a PhD in nutritional biochemistry. So 2007 rolls around. I then go to UC Berkeley and I study for five years to get a PhD in nutritional biochemistry. And I went there literally with one question. And that question was, am I a freak of nature? That's literally the only thing that I cared about. And the reason I asked that question was because what I was experiencing in my body was so dramatic and so obvious, but yet I knew, I don't know, five human beings, 10 human beings on the planet that were actually doing what I was doing. And they went against the entire mainstream diabetes philosophy. So while I was at graduate school, uh, I was given the opportunity to do a deep, deep, deep dive into understanding what is diabetes, what causes it, and how do you reverse it? And just for clarity here, I have type one diabetes, which is not a reversible condition. The project that I was given was to investigate type two diabetes, which is a reversible condition, and try and figure out how do you create type two diabetes and how do you reverse type two diabetes using either intermittent fasting or exercise or diet modification. So while I was there, I uncovered this mountain of research dating back to the 1930s, that uncovered exactly the, the, the experiment that I had been conducting in myself since 2003. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. There's research to, to back this up. Not only is there research to back it up, but the research dates back almost 100 years. This is ridiculous. Like, Why, why does the, the mainstream diabetes world not know this information? Why does the public not know this information? Why is this information buried inside of 
a vault of scientific literature that the public doesn't know exists. I mean, it's literally hidden in plain sight, but like who, who knew that? So when I graduated from UC Berkeley in 2012, I was like, you know what? I want to teach real people how to make this happen in their life. I want to teach people living with diabetes that there is a, not only another option, but a more effective option for blood glucose control and a more effective option for not just managing, but reversing prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, and gestational diabetes using a plant-based diet. And in addition to that, you if you're living with type 1 diabetes or type 1.5, which are both autoimmune conditions, you can get exceptional, like exceptional laser precision blood glucose control using this exact same method. So that's when I joined forces with Robbie Barbero, who lived in Southern California at the time, and he also has type 1 diabetes. And the two of us ended up basically creating Mastering Diabetes, which is the business that we still run today. And it's, it's a coaching program that helps people with any form of diabetes, type 1, 1.5, prediabetes, type 2, gestational, you name it. We teach these uh, people with diabetes how to make the transition to a plant-based diet. And when you make the transition to a plant-based diet, a lot of things are going to change in your favor. So we teach them how to make the transition. We teach them how to manage their blood glucose. We teach them how to troubleshoot things when things go wrong. And we teach them why. Why are you going to do this? What are the short-term effects? What are the long-term effects? And over the course of the last four and a half, five years now, we have literally run more than 10,000 people through our coaching program. And the results are tremendous. Like I thought, I thought I had a decent story. And then I start to read the stories of other people and the stories of other people just blow me away. Can you explain the differences of, of the types of diabetes? You said, I, I've heard of type 1 diabetes. I've heard of type 2 diabetes. I've never heard of 1.5. Can you, and you mentioned just gestational diabetes. Can you, mm-hmm. for our audience and for me, explain the differences between all of those? For sure. That's a great question. So, most people believe that there's sort of like two forms of diabetes, just like you're saying, type one and type two, and that's it. But it turns out that there's actually six forms of diabetes. And the six forms of diabetes are type one, type 1.5, there's prediabetes, there's type two diabetes, there's gestational diabetes, and then there's type three diabetes. Okay, so it's gotten like much more complicated. It used to just be, you know, do you want chocolate or vanilla? And now it's like, oh, I'm going to Baskin Robbins and I just have like this entire collection of different flavors of diabetes, right? So type one diabetes is an autoimmune condition. That's what I have. Autoimmune basically means that your immune system has been, you know, hijacked or tricked into believing that the insulin producing cells inside of your pancreas are a threat to your survival. And so as a result of that, my own immune system or your own immune system will go and it will literally not only find and locate those insulin producing beta cells, but they will, uh, your immune system will destroy them. So as a result of that, you lose your ability to manufacture and secrete insulin. And as a result of that, uh, you now have to take insulin from the outside world. You got to inject it via syringe, via insulin pump, via pen in order to substitute for the insulin that you're no longer manufacturing. Okay, type 1.5 diet, and and one more thing about type 1 is that it generally affects people under the age of 30. Most people develop type 1 diabetes in their, like, you know, between the ages of like 2 and 10. But then there's a growing number of people that are getting type 1 diabetes now in their, you know, mid-teens, 20s, and young, or like late 20s. Then 
The next one is type 1.5 diabetes, which is basically the exact same thing as type 1, except it affects adults older than the age of 30, and it's a slower progressing version of type 1 diabetes. So rather than becoming fully insulin dependent in like 12 to 18 months, which happens in type 1, people with type 1.5 diabetes, sometimes, you know, it takes them five years, 10 years or so to become fully insulin dependent. And some people don't ever become fully insulin dependent. So, so their insulin needs are different uh, and it's a very slow progressing, but yet autoimmune condition. Then you have prediabetes and type 2. Prediabetes is a condition that is a warning sign that type 2 diabetes is about to set in. So prediabetes is basically the, the precursor, the prerequisite to, to developing type 2 diabetes, but both of them are actually the result of another condition, and the other condition is called insulin resistance. So the progression goes, number one, first develop insulin resistance as a result of your lifestyle. Number two, then develop prediabetes. And then if prediabetes is not corrected and you don't take evasive action to make yourself more insulin sensitive, then prediabetes can turn into type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is the condition that affects, you know, more than 90% of the diabetes population today. The beauty of the prediabetes and type 2 diabetes scenario is that in more than 80 to 90% of all cases, you can take type 2 diabetes and you can reverse it back to prediabetes. And then you can reverse prediabetes back to insulin resistant, then you can reverse insulin resistant back to non-diabetic. So this is a two-way street. You can progress and you can also reverse. And that's one of the things that we're bringing to the world of diabetes because even medical professionals in today's world literally don't believe that type 2 diabetes is a reversible condition, even though it has been shown and demonstrated in the medical research over and over and over again. Then the last two flavors, we have gestational diabetes, which is a form of diabetes that is, again, created by insulin resistance. You first develop insulin resistance. It affects women who are pregnant. So they're insulin resistant, usually going into pregnancy. They then end up with blood glucose control problems during pregnancy. And those blood glucose control problems can affect the, both the health of the baby as well as the health of the mom and significantly increase the risk for complications. And these complications include things like high blood pressure or preeclampsia when a mom's delivering the baby. It can lead to uh, increased risk for premature birth. It can it lead to increased birth size for the baby, which can then set into stage um, the, uh, the increased risk for the baby becoming obese uh, as it develops outside of the womb. It can also predispose the mom to developing type 2 diabetes after she's delivered the baby. So it can be a really sort of a dangerous uh, metabolic scenario that happens when a mom is pregnant and then progresses after pregnancy. And then finally, type 3 diabetes is a new form of diabetes that's sort of been pub becoming more uh, sort of aware and scientific communities are talking more about it over the past like 10 to 15 years. And it basically is the same as Alzheimer's disease. It's diabetes of your brain. It's what happens when insulin resistance is uncorrected and then it negatively impacts the, uh, the, the neurons in your central nervous system that then decrease your cognitive ability and can lead to loss of spatial recognition, loss of memory, and an inability to function in normal society. Some people refer to that as vascular dementia. Some people refer to it as Alzheimer's disease, depending on you know, how far you've progressed. And what research is now finding is that cognitive decline is directly linked to your level of insulin resistance, and that's why it's called type 3 diabetes. Does that clarify things up? 
Yes, yes, that does. I'd like to go back to type 2 diabetes because I think that that's the majority of the people I know who live with diabetes have type 2 diabetes. And I'm wondering what causes prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. So it's a great question. You're absolutely right in that, you know, type 2 diabetes affects the overwhelming majority of all people living with uh, diabetes, both in the United States as well as, you know, internationally. And prediabetes is the precursor, just like we talked about. So the way to think about this is that both of them are fed by insulin resistance. So in order to really answer your question, like, well, what causes this? We have to get to the biological reason that insulin resistance first shows its head. There's a lot of debate. I mean, there is an unreasonable amount, an, an exaggerated amount of debate in the world about what actually causes insulin resistance. And um, it, it's kind of frustrating to actually watch that because so much of the uh, the confusion that exists online right now is spread by people that just don't have the sort of like biological education to talk about it. And so it's like people who don't really fully understand how to, you know, explain the situation and, and prescribe or, or diagnose it, then spread information that's actually erroneous and then it causes more confusion. So if you look in the scientific literature and try and figure out what causes insulin resistance, what you're likely to find is exactly what I found back in 2012 when I first started my uh, graduate degree, which is that I was expecting to find a bunch of literature that confirmed this story that I had been told early in my diabetes career, which is that carbs and sugar cause prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. So when I went delving through the literature for months trying to figure out, well, how am I going to create type 2 diabetes in these laboratory animals that I have been tasked with? I was expecting to, to find research that says, okay, well, in order to create type 2 diabetes, we took these mice and we took these rats and we fed them a high sugar diet or a high fructose diet or a high sucrose diet or a high glucose diet. And the more and more that I looked, the more that I recognized was that that's not how you create type 2 diabetes. What the medical literature demonstrated was that in order to create type 2 diabetes, you feed laboratory animals a diet that's high in fat, specifically saturated fat. And I kept on seeing this over and over and over again. We fed animals a diet containing 60% fat, 70% fat, 80% fat for eight weeks until we measured that they were living with type 2 diabetes using these different indicators. And I just saw this over and over and over again. And I was like, wait, what? You're creating diabetes by feeding fat? That doesn't make any sense. That seems weird. So the further I delved into it, over the course of the next, you know, five years being at UC Berkeley and conducting, you know, hundreds of experiments, it became very, very obvious what the story of diabetes was or what the story of diabetes is. And the story that I'm going to tell you right now is the same story that not only happens in laboratory rats and mice, it happens in mammals. So whether you're a mouse, a rat, a dog, a cat, a raccoon, a monkey, a horse, it's very, very similar because the biology of all mammals is very highly conserved. And the story goes like this. When you consume a diet that contains a significant amount of fat, okay, the fat that you eat actually is locked up in this type of uh, molecule known as a triglyceride. So you consume a triglyceride and the triglyceride basically goes into your mouth 
it travels down your esophagus and it gets inside of your stomach. Inside of your stomach, there's it's like a it's an it's an acid chamber where the walls of your stomach secrete hydrochloric acid and they start to sort of break up and and unfold to the food that you've consumed. Once that's sort of partially digested, that food then moves into your small intestine, which is the next chamber. And your small intestine is the location at which the bulk of nutrient digestion and nutrient absorption occurs. So what that means is that this sort of partially digested food that came out of your stomach is now in your small intestine. And in your small intestine, you have multiple different tissues that are, that are creating these digestive enzymes. So your liver makes digestive enzymes and puts it into your small intestine. Your pancreas makes digestive enzymes and puts it in your small intestine. And your small intestine itself makes its own digestive enzymes and then uses that to act upon the food. So once in your small intestine, your, the, the, the partially broken down food is now being acted upon by multiple tissues. And the whole purpose is to continue to fully, like completely digest this food and break down very complex molecules into individual building blocks. And then take those building blocks, absorb them into the blood, and then transport them to tissues that require them. So when it comes to these triglyceride molecules, these triglyceride molecules are then broken into individual fatty acids. The fatty acids are then absorbed through the walls of your small intestine and they get inside of your blood. Once they're in your blood, they then are transported uh, in these little particles called chylomicrons, which don't, don't worry about the name. But the idea here is that these chylomicron particles are now have a job to deliver fatty acids to tissues. So they want to deliver fatty acids to whichever tissue says, okay, cool, I'll take them. So in an ideal world, your adipose tissue or your fat tissue would be the only tissue in your entire body that would absorb fatty acids. If that were the case, then the fatty acids that you put into your mouth or the triglyceride you put in your mouth would then get directed to your adipose tissue, your fat tissue, and that would be a good thing because your fat tissue is actually a safe place to store fat. And it's a safe place to store fat because both from a mechanical and an enzymatic perspective, that tissue is perfectly designed to be able to absorb fat when present, hold on to that fat for a long period of time, and then export it when the time is right. So it's, it's literally like a, it's designed to be a Costco warehouse of fatty acids. And it functions very nicely. But the problem is that when these chylomicron particles are floating through your blood because you ate a high fat meal or you have a high fat diet in general, these chylomicron particles, they give these fatty acids to your adipose tissue, which is good. But then in addition to that, they also give fatty acids to your liver and they also give fatty acids to your muscle. And your liver and muscle say, okay, fine, I, I'll take this stuff up. But your liver and muscle have a different design. They are designed to store small amounts of fatty acids at any given moment in time. Because literally, if you take a look at the architecture of these cells, they're built very similarly to one another in that they have a small area of the cell, a, a lipid droplet, which is designed to store small amounts of triglyceride, but not large amounts. And so when you're eating a high-fat diet, what you end up doing is it's very easy to overwhelm your liver and muscle and put too much fatty acids inside of them. And so in a short period of time, when there's too much fat being pushed into your liver, too much fat being pushed into your muscle, then your liver and muscle, all of a sudden, they go into this like self-defense mechanism where they're like, oh, sh crap, what are we supposed to do? Like, How do we stop more stuff from coming in? We don't want this stuff where there's just too much of it. So one of the things that they do to actually block more energy from coming inside the cell is they, they, they initiate this process known as insulin resistance. They literally block themselves from communicating with insulin. Now, why the heck would you want to do that? 
the reason they do that is because insulin is the single most powerful, what's called anabolic hormone in your body. Anabolic hormones are hormones that promote synthesis. They promote either fuel storage or fuel uptake or the synthesis of molecules, the synthesis of RNA, the synthesis of DNA, the synthesis of glycogen, of, of proteins, of fatty acids. And so insulin has a thousand different metabolic properties, but every single one of those properties is an anabolic process, meaning it's, it's, it's a growth hormone, it's a growth signal. So if insulin is present in the blood, what, what it tells tissues to do is it says, hey, tissues, open up your doors and take glucose in, take fatty acids in, take amino acids in. This is your signal. And so if tissues are already receiving too much fatty acids, then what they can do is they can basically opt out of the insulin game. And they're like, okay, great. I'm not going to pay attention to you anymore, insulin. You're done. So that way, the next time you go eat a banana, literally like one banana, which isn't even that much carbohydrate, what ends up happening is that your pancreas manufactures just a little bit of insulin. That insulin then comes and knocks on the door of your liver, goes, hey, knock, knock. There's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? Hey, muscle, knock, knock. There's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? And both of these tissues respond by saying, like, no, 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 no. Don't, like, don't, don't pay attention to insulin. Just pretend like you're not home. And so both of these tissues just ignore insulin for the most part. And insulin's like, knock, 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 knock. I got some stuff. Do you want to take it up? And both of these tissues are basically playing the insulin resistance game or the insulin rejection game. So insulin's like, damn, I can't get this stuff in. I can't get the glucose into these tissues. So what ends up happening is the glucose ends up pooling or accumulating inside of your blood and that causes a high blood glucose value. So this is the, the common experience that people with type 2 diabetes, even type 1 diabetes have when they've developed insulin resistance is that they're eating a high fat diet because the diabetes world told you not to eat carbohydrates. So they go and they eat more fat and more protein and more fat and more protein. They have eggs, and they have bacon and they have sausages and then they have cheese and dairy products and olive oil and nuts and seeds and avocados. And they're doing this on a daily basis, more fat, more fat, more fat, more fat. And then at some point, days in, three days, five days, you know, a week in, they're like, huh, I'm going to go eat a banana or I'm going to eat a piece of bread or I'm going to have that tiny bowl of pasta. They eat the carbohydrate, all of a sudden, boom, they look at their blood glucose meter an hour later and their glucose is sky high. I'm talking 250, 300, 350. And it, and it frustrates them. And they're like, they're like, see, see guys, I told you, I can't eat carbohydrates because when I eat carbohydrates, my blood glucose goes through the roof. So carbohydrates are bad for me. So then they start eating more fat to fuel the problem. But what they're not recognizing is that it's not the carbohydrates fault. The carbohydrate is literally just a symptom of the insulin resistance process. But by eating more fat, they're making themselves more insulin resistant and fueling this fire. But in reality, the real solution to this problem is to actually lower your fat intake. And by lowering your fat intake, you can then relieve the stress on your liver, relieve the stress on your muscle, and make those tissues insulin sensitive such that the next time you eat something that's carbohydrate rich, all of a sudden that glucose can go inside of those tissues and your blood glucose actually comes down. Yes. Oh gosh. Okay. So there's a lot there. 
We're starting to run short on time and I selfishly have a lot of questions for you. I I've cool. talked to you in the past about my family and the severe prices they've paid with their life even uh, as a right. result of having type 2 diabetes. And it's just, it's something that I hear so often. You know, we hear from people who say, my mom has type 2 diabetes. How can I, how can I help her want to have a lifestyle change. And so could you give us some quick, how one would get started reversing their type two diabetes? The first thing that's required in order to start reversing diabetes is to, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's almost like stop paying attention to the internet and the blogosphere because it can become very confusing and it's easy to, you know, get influenced by people who are promoting a low carbohydrate diet. And what I find is that people who actually truly do want to reverse insulin resistance, you know, using a plant-based approach, sometimes we tell them to like literally like unsubscribe from all these different accounts you're following and just like turn that stuff off because it's just unfortunately often problematic. But as far as the mechanics are concerned, the, the simplest way to go about it is literally don't think of like lifestyle change as being this thing that you have to do in two weeks. It's overwhelming. Nobody can do that. Instead, I want you to think of, okay, I'm going to transition to a plant-based diet, but I'm going to give myself one year to do it. Okay. So when you, when you lengthen time scale, all of a sudden you're like, okay, cool. What that means is that I'm just literally going to play with my breakfast. I'm, I'm just going to play games with my breakfast and I'm going to change from eating this like eggs and bacon breakfast that I'm normally eating or like eggs and oatmeal, something like that. And I'm going to, I'm going to opt for a hundred percent plant-based breakfast. And when I do that, then I'm going to increase my carbohydrate intake and lower my fat intake at that one meal. I literally don't care how long that takes you. It could take you a week. It could take you two weeks. It could take you a month. It doesn't matter. I want you to get comfortable with a, a plant-based breakfast and then get comfortable managing your blood glucose in, that, in those morning hours. And then once you're ready to move on to the next phase, then move on to the next phase. Next Can you phase give is an example lunch. of some plant-based breakfast, like oatmeal and fruit, or do you do like tofu scramble? What are some common ones you turn to? Also, Sarah, sorry, can you let us know if you can eat nuts and avocados for that healthy breakfast or is that bad? Okay, cool. So um, to answer both of your questions here, we basically have constructed a green light, yellow light, red light list of foods if you really want to reverse insulin resistance. So in the green light category, we have four main groups. Number one, fruits, all fruits, all shapes, all colors, all sizes. Number two, starchy vegetables. These are root vegetables like potatoes, yams, squashes, okay? Number three are legumes, all beans, all peas, all lentils. And then number four are whole grains, okay? Fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, whole grains. Um, every single meal, whether it's your breakfast, whether it's your lunch, whether it's your di dinner, should be, should be majority made up of those foods. What about non-starchy vegetables? Yeah, so the other uh, foods that are in the green light include non-starchy vegetables, leafy greens, herbs and spices, and mushrooms. Okay, so those are also technically green light foods, but the reason why we don't focus on those foods is because they're, they're very calorie poor. So what we want people to do is eat predominantly the calorie-rich foods or the, the foods that will actually fill you up and give you enough calorie uh, content. And then, sure, sprinkle in the non-starchy vegetables and the herbs and spices and the mushrooms, no problem, as much as you want, okay? Then the yellow light category tends to be foods that are plant-based that tend to be slightly higher in their fat intake, such as avocados, nuts, seeds, 
tofu is in that category, olives, coconuts, and I'm blanking on a couple others, but basically higher fat plant-based foods. Then in the red light category, we have uh, foods that are the, the highest saturated fat content. So that's red meat, white meat, dairy products of all shapes and sizes, fish, eggs, and then we also put oils in that category as well. Because oils, even though they've been marketed as being you know, heart healthy and whatnot, when it comes to diabetes, they can significantly cause your blood glucose to do very weird things, okay? So to answer your question, what's a good example of a breakfast? A great example of a breakfast is literally three or four different fruits cut up into a bowl. That's it. I'm not even joking. Just something that simple, okay? So like fruits in a bowl or fruits plus oatmeal, totally fine. Sometimes people want to make, you know, if they want to go a little bit more complicated, they will make some kind of like black bean and tomato sort of like Latino inspired dish. Totally fine. Go ahead and make that. But when it comes to something like tofu or avocados, again, those are in the yellow light category. So we try and say, okay, you can eat small amounts of those, but a little bit goes a long way. Okay. Another thing, not funny. It was, it's interesting to me. I grew up in a primarily Mexican American community and Mm -hmm. type two diabetes was everywhere. And, uh, Again, in my own family, there there have been people who have had their toes amputated or their their feet. And in Michelle's life, she had never heard of anyone having an amputation. So I'm wondering how common is that and how do people get there? How severe is it to not make a lifestyle change, change what you're eating? How severe can it be? Yeah, it was a great question. So there's these, uh, when you get first diagnosed with diabetes, um, at least when I did back in 2002, My doctors told me at the time, they said, Cyrus, I hate to break it to you, but we're going to have to take 10 years off of your life right now. And I was like, what? They were like, yep, your average person with type 1 diabetes lives 10 years less than their non-diabetic counterparts. So expect it. And I was like, that's not very exciting. And then in addition to that, you get told that there's these uh, these, um, inevitable consequences of living with diabetes. And this goes for type 1 as well as type 2. Um, And these are things like retinopathy, which causes blindness, chronic kidney disease, otherwise known as CKD, okay? Peripheral neuropathy, which is nerve tingling in your your extremities, mainly your hands and your feet. And then also like incredibly poor circulation, especially in your extremities, which can then lead to necrosis, which can then lead to amputations. So your question here, Tony, is how common is that? And the answer is, Unfortunately, it's more common than anybody wants to believe. I don't know the actual percentage of all people living with diabetes that end up succumbing to those inevitable consequences. But if I had to hazard a guess, I would say it's somewhere on the order of like 10 to 15%. Okay. But to answer your other question is like, how important is lifestyle change and like how necessary is lifestyle change? And my answer is the inevitable consequences are certainly inevitable consequences if you choose to live either a diet or a lifestyle that you know has a significant amount of packaged and processed foods in it like the standard american diet will certainly make those consequences inevitable no question and what the research is also showing is that if you're consuming a low carbohydrate diet over the course of time that your risk for many chronic diseases also dramatically goes up so If you choose to live either one of those two lifestyles over the course of many years, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years, good luck. I mean, you are going to have a significantly reduced longevity and you're going to likely increase your risk for many chronic diseases. But if you choose 
to switch your lifestyle and eat a lower fat lifestyle, eat more plants, integrate some exercise, have a more of a mindful practice, and um, you know, wrap that all up into one lifestyle, then you can dramatic, you can squash, literally squash the prospect of developing chronic uh, conditions into the future. And these consequences that are referred to as inevitable consequences are by no means inevitable. They are consequences that affect people who live, who choose to live an unhealthy lifestyle. But if you're choosing to live a very optimally healthy lifestyle, not only do those consequences generally not show up, but those, those 10 years that I had to you know, take off of my life, you can add them right back. And in fact, you can even add more years beyond that. When we're talking to our loved ones who are living with type 2 diabetes specifically, I know that sometimes it can feel really overwhelming for them when they're getting this really awful news of potential amputations or, or living with tingling in your feet or it's just a lot. And sometimes you can try to want to, you could try to make a lifestyle change, but it, it just becomes too much. How can we continuously inspire people to keep striving for a healthier life to Mm -hmm. try to reverse their type 2 diabetes when it just seems really, really, really exhausting and tough? Okay. My simple response to that is we tell people in our our coaching program, we tell people, if if you can define your why, like, why do you want to live? It may sound like a, a silly question to ask yourself, but like, why, what is important to you? If you can, if you can really zone in on exactly why it is that you value your time on this planet and why you value your health, you know, like, what is it going to allow you to do? Well, it's going to allow me to, uh, you know, not feel so crappy. Okay. Why? Well, it's going to allow me to, uh, you know, well, what is that going to do for you? It's like, well, that'll allow me to play with my kids more. Okay. Well, why is that important for you? Well, it's good because I'll be able to let them, you know, see them grow up. Why is that important to you? Well, it's because I love my kids and there's, I would do anything in the world for them. And they're like, good, that's your why. I want you to think about that literally every single day. And when you can really zone in on exactly what it is that you're, that you're striving for, then that becomes your North star. That's your guiding light. And you always move towards that no matter what comes in the way, no matter how much work you have to do, no matter how much what pandemic hits the world, no matter, you know, whether the gym is closed, it does not matter. These little roadblocks that get in the way, they're insignificant because they're tiny little blips on a much larger radar. Okay. So identifying your why is very important. Number two, also surrounding yourself with other people that are going through the exact same lifestyle change that you want to go through is not only important, it is required. Okay. I used to think that like a community is, oh, okay, community is helpful. Okay, great. Sounds, sounds great. But what we've learned from running Mastering Diabetes is that when you put yourself in a community of other people that are getting the results that you want, your results become inevitable. That's the best part. So if you join a community of other people that are online community, in-person community, it doesn't matter, but you join that community and all of a sudden people are talking about, oh yeah, I lost three pounds last week. Oh yeah, I've lost 45 pounds overall. My A1C fell by 2%. I, I just got off my, you know, 2000 milligrams of metformin before you, you hear these stories enough and enough and enough. And it just like comes in every single day, every single day, every single day before you know it, the same thing happens to you. And we've seen this over and over and over again. So like, I realize that the world can put obstacles in your way, but if you, if you identify with your why, if you really zone in on exactly what it is you're trying to accomplish, and then you change your environment such that your environment provides you with the exact 
lifestyle that you want to live, then boom, all of a sudden your results become somewhat inevitable. That's, it kind of reminds me of the book Atomic Habits. I'm not sure if you've read that book, but basically asking yourself that question every single time you're faced with something that could lead you down a different path that is not aligned with your goals, uh, reminding yourself of that why will take you so far long-term. Cyrus, for people who may, I mean, this is incredibly inspiring and I'm sure many people will walk away just ready to make a change. Do you have a sense of how long things take? So if someone's like going all at it or just feels like they've been working really hard for a few months and aren't seeing the results, like what can people expect when they start making efforts? Yeah, this is a great question because when I first did this process, what I noticed, like I told you earlier in the interview, is that within the first week, my blood glucose fell by, you know, it was fell dramatically. It got cut in half and my insulin use got cut by 40%. But I'm an end of one story. So I didn't know the answer to your question until we started working with large numbers of people. And after having worked with multiple thousands of people, I started to see the same pattern emerge, which was that people who were living with any form of diabetes who had developed a, a significant complications with a high blood glucose, with a high A1C, with excess weight, you know, with, uh, with kidney damage, with liver damage, they were getting very, very quick results. And I'll be clear here. When I say quick results, I don't mean you're going to reverse diabetes in a week. But when I say quick results, I mean, you start to see improvements in a very short period of time. So within what we normally see is that within the first one to two weeks, people start to experience dramatic reductions in number one, their blood glucose in the fasting state when they first wake up in the morning. Number two, their, their blood glucose after they eat a meal. Number three, their energy levels generally go up very quickly. And then number four, they start to lose weight if weight loss is something that they're trying to achieve. Okay, so those, those results come very quickly. And then the next type of results that end up coming in is a reduction in blood pressure, which unfortunately high blood pressure affects like more than 50% of the population today. And then people also see a reduction in their cholesterol values over the course of approximately two to three months. And then all those other problems, all those other you know, effects continue to compound on themselves. So their glucose comes down more, their A1C comes down more, they start to lose weight. And three months into the process, six months into the process, all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, I feel like a completely different human. Okay, so like the short term shows glimmers of hope. And once you start to feel those improvements in your body and you can literally feel more energy and you, you, know, you can use your brain a little bit better and you're starting to lose a little bit of weight, it becomes so exciting and so inspirational that most people don't want to give up and they just continue and they continue and they continue and the results keep on getting better and better over the course of time. That is, that's really incredible. It's so empowering to know how much power we have over our own health and so many things that for much of life, we've gone through not thinking that or not being told that. Can you just share one more time for all the different types of diabetes? Because it was listening to one of your talks recently. I thought that only type 2 diabetes was reversible or even could be impacted by diet. So for all the different types of diabetes that you mentioned, can you share how much control people have over that, what they can maybe expect. And then if you have any just final words to share with those listening, uh, words of inspiration or actions that you'd recommend people take. Yeah, for sure. Great question. Okay, so um, type 1 and type 1.5 diabetes are not reversible conditions in today's day and age. So as of, you know, right now, there's, there's no known method to reverse type 1 or type 1.5. That's okay. The goal when living with type 1 or 1.5 is not to reverse it. The goal is to get exquisitely 
well-controlled blood glucose. And when you do that, then the complications that arise, that can arise into the future, the risk for those complications goes down dramatically. Okay? When you're living with either prediabetes or type 2 diabetes or gestational diabetes, all three of those are caused by insulin resistance. So it only makes sense that if you were to reverse the insulin resistance pathology and become insulin sensitive, that your symptomology of prediabetes type 2 and gestational diabetes will go away. And the research will, will demonstrates that in an overwhelming majority of all cases of gestational prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, you can reverse them, but you need to, have to, must become insulin sensitive and maintain that insulin sensitivity over the course of time in order to make that work. So there's this sort of like new evolving branch of medicine, which is about not just like chronic disease management, but it's chronic disease reversal. And diabetes should be sitting front row in that, in that new field. And it is because diabetes is a very reversible process, extremely reversible process. And the medical community is now waking up to that, which is great. And, you know, communities like ours where, you know, there's 10,000 plus people who have already gone through this process and are continuing to get benefits over the course of time. It's just like, it's such a powerful story and it's such a powerful collection of people who are all striving towards the same thing. And it's just, it's just mind boggling to see how much control people truly do have over their overall health. That's amazing. Thank you so, so much, Cyrus. We will definitely be pointing people to your incredible book, Mastering Diabetes, and your website and all of the resources that you've shared. Thank you so much again. And uh, for, yeah, really for changing the lives, saving the lives of so many people and potentially people listening right now. So thank you, Cyrus. Yes, I Absolutely. feel like we need to have you on for a part two because there's just so much to cover. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah, it's funny. Sometimes I tend to talk a lot, so I apologize if I like dominated the conversation here, but the diabetes is fascinating and there's so much to talk about. So if you want to do a part two at any point, you just let me know. Brilliant. Thank Let's you so much. It. Thanks, Cyrus. Thank you. A quick reminder to check out our sponsors of the show, Better Than Bouillon and Vital Body Therapeutics. You can find the links to both of those in our show notes at plantpoweredpeople.com. Better Than Bouillon for awesome soup broth bases and Vital Body Therapeutics for CBD creams and oils and bath soaks. Thank you both so much for sponsoring the show. It is no surprise that Cyrus did a fantastic job covering everything. We asked him so many questions and he's obviously so incredibly knowledgeable. I feel really grateful that he came on and shared his experience as someone who's living with diabetes but also someone who's extensively studied and researched for so long now how to help people. I feel so, so grateful that he exists in the world. <laughs> I mean, he just brought to life so much knowledge to so many people. And I only wish that we had more time with him. Maybe we will do a part two. All of those listening, if you think that would be helpful or you'd like that, please do let us know. You can always message us or contact us through our social media pages. You can find everything at plantpoweredpodcast.com. We will include in the show notes there for this episode, everything that he mentioned today and all the resources that we have that can support you if you are struggling with diabetes or would like to learn more about Cyrus and his work and connect with him. We'll have all of that for you there. 
Yes, and definitely check out his book. It was on the New York Times bestsellers list, which is an amazing accomplishment. And um, Michelle, Michelle mentioned to reach out to us if you want to have a part two of this. I, I really, we had a whole list of questions and we didn't even get through all of them. So I'm sure other people may have felt the same or may have questions. Yes, please shoot them to us or you can leave us a review and just say, more Cyrus, please. <laughs> a review on Apple Podcasts. Is that what it's called yes. now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Okay>. Apple, <laughs> Apple Podcasts. And, uh, and of course, you can always support this podcast on patreon.com slash plant-powered people. And <laughs> make tongue twister that even we can't get right. <laughs> if you make it there, big extra props because yes. we know it's hard. Patreon.com slash plantpoweredpodcast.com. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. We will catch you in the next one. Yes. And if you know anyone with diabetes who you think this would be helpful for, I really do hope that you'll share it. I can't wait for this episode to go live because I have a number of people in my own life who I'm just so eager to share this information information with, especially people with type 1 diabetes that I just thought, oh, that's just something you're stuck with and you have little control over. So hopefully this can be helpful to many people. And Tony and I are both planning to create some more extensive resources on both plantbasedonabudget.com and worldofvegan.com that can hopefully help you out with resources that are easy to share with friends and family. So thank you, everyone. Wishing you health, happiness, lots of love. And we'll talk to you in the next one. Bye. Bye.